This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream brand new episodes to your chosen device every Thursday. Now, we're getting to that time of year in the Northern Hemisphere when the nights draw in, temperatures fall, and our thoughts turn to chilling tales of death, darkness, hauntings, and the afterlife. Joining me to discuss the importance of historical beliefs about the supernatural, death and commemoration, and their significance to medieval sites in English Heritage's care, are our two guests for today. Well, I'm Michael Carter, and I'm a Senior Properties Historian here at English Heritage. And I'm Dale Townsend. I'm Professor of Gothic Literature in the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. A chilling time. Let's talk to Michael first. Uh, You're leading this new series of in-person events on this very subject this autumn. So I wondered if you can get us underway by introducing these events. What are they called and what will be happening? They're very much collaboration between us here at English Heritage, myself, Dominic Bouchard, Head of Interpretation, and Dale. These wouldn't be happening without Dale. And there are a series of events called Revenants and Remains, and they are getting to the heart about the purpose of medieval monasteries, which is about the fate of the soul after death. And we're going to be innovatively using tales of the supernatural. And I don't mean recent sightings of ethereal grey ladies at windows. I mean ghost stories written down in some cases seven or eight hundred years ago by monks and nuns recounting how spooky tales of the supernatural really do get to the heart of their belief systems and the purpose of these monasteries. And we're going to be having a series of site tours. There'll be creative writing workshops. There's going to be a youth engagement program. And there are also going to be a series of readings of ghost stories by some of the classics in English literature. Dale, do you want to say any more? Well, we're straddling notions of the supernatural quite broadly uh, in historical terms in this project. We've got Michael overseeing the medieval side of things. And as he said, the ghost stories associated with particular sites in the north of England. But we're also taking notions of the supernatural forward to the 18th century, where the Gothic imagination arises and where so many of these sites become important for what we now understand as Gothic fiction and poetry. And then we're updating this work from the 18th century and taking it into modern and contemporary heritage and the heritage industry, and really asking modern-day visitors to ruins to experience the sites and notions of heritage through the supernatural, notions of the supernatural that have been in place around these particular sites from the medieval period right through the 18th century, and we're suggesting to the present day too. So broadly speaking, a series of free in-person events in the north of England at a series of, is it religious sites, Michael? Yeah, they're all taking place at monasteries in northern England in the care of English heritage. And as you say, they are free and they're taking place over a series of weekends. So get your pen and papers handy, listeners. I'll tell you when and where they're happening. 
Now, by the time this goes out, the first event on the 1st and 2nd of October, which is at Roach Abbey, will already have happened. But after that, on the 8th and 9th, we'll be at Furnace Abbey up in Cumbria. I've got some fantastic stories, and it is a remarkable sight. Then it's the 5th and 6th of November at Byland Abbey. It's a site very, very close to my heart. Then on the 12th of November, we're at Lanacos Priory. And we're back at Lanacos Priory, which is in Cumbria also. And that's on the 19th of November. And the programme of events comes to an end at Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire, the 26th and the 27th of November. That's one of the ones we recently covered on the podcast, Revo Abbey. Uh, we covered it Absolutely. twice, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, Revo is a, a remarkable site of huge historical, architectural, art historical and cultural significance. It comes up many, many times in uh, English heritage podcasts and in publications. It's, it's just a testament to how important the site is. Mm. Now, you mentioned that uh, people should grab their pens to uh, note down these dates but also they're going to be able to get involved in creative writing workshops as part of these in-person tours so how does that work exactly well our assumption here is an historical one and we noticed in in the original research that informs this project the significance of ruins to acts of literary creativity in the 18th century in particular where a lot of now forgotten, undistinguished poets and tourists and visitors to these ruins were inspired to write about them, often in a picturesque mode of description, topographical description, but also often in a Gothic mode. And they would set tales of the supernatural and horror and terror in these ruined monastical piles, sometimes real abbeys and monasteries, but often totally imaginary ones. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to introduce modern day visitors to the ruins to the same sort of practices. And we're trying to, I suppose, establish these ruins as muses to inspire acts of creativity, literary creativity, in the same way that they did in the 18th century. So these creative writing workshops are going to be hosted on site. And they're going to be led by the wonderful creative writer, Manchester-based creative writer, award-winning Gothic novelist and poet, Rosie Garland. And she's going to be taking groups of approximately 20 people each and guiding them through what it means to write about these ruins. And we, we just want to see really what sorts of acts of literary creativity they inspire in the present day, updating practices of writing about ruins that we looked at in our earlier project in the 18th century. Now, some of these sites are ruins, obviously, and exposed to the elements. So how does one go on a tour and, you know, presumably they bring their brolly and wellies and this sort of thing. How do they then get together and do these writing workshops after that? Well, these writing workshops are going to be housed indoors, you know, in education rooms at the sites, but also in nearby venues, venues that Michael has booked and sorted out close to each of the sites. Michael, do you want to say a little bit more about the specific venues for these creative writing workshops? 
Yeah, I mean, there are constraints for our sites. And as you said, you know, they're open to the elements and they're open to the public as well. These are sites which people come to enjoy for a huge variety of reasons. And, you know, we don't want to be taking them over for the weekend and getting in the way of other visitors. And also in terms of the comfort of people attending the workshops and space constraints, we are going to be held indoors. So the ones for Roach Abbey were held at nearby Connorsborough Castle. The ones for Byland Abbey are going to be held in a nearby village hall. Lanacost, we will be uh, splitting it between Bird Oswald, Roman Four, and also the fantastic Dacre Hall, which is part of the Priory complex. And for Revo, it's the Revo Village Hall. Now, I have to emphasize that although anybody can turn up for the site tours, the writing workshops and the ghost story readings have to be booked. And you can do this via the English Heritage Events website. And you can also do it. There's a fantastic Revenants and Remains website. Search that term and it'll come up. And there's a booking link there as well. So just turn up for the site tours. They don't require booking. But the indoor events do have to be booked because places are strictly limited. And I checked the status of bookings just before coming on air and things are already selling out. So act now. Okay. So who are these events aimed at then? Well, we're we're hoping to recruit several different members of of the general population. Some of them are, are, I would imagine, directed at, at members of English heritage, but we also want to go broader than that. And this is one of the reasons why you don't have to be an English heritage member to participate or join the tours and why we have bookings for the various events on the Revenants and Remains website that Michael has referred to. So general tourists, ruined tourists, or people interested in heritage and national history, but within that, more specialized groups. For example, the youth engagement activities that Dominique Bouchard is overseeing via the Shout Out Loud initiative at English Heritage is aimed at groups of youths between 16 and 24 who are local to each of the areas. So they are people who often feel excluded from official notions of heritage with the capital H, and we're hoping to engage them via the supernatural. You know, the Gothic is one of those very, very popular modes that engages and excites and invigorates younger people. It's, it's often seen as a very, very instructive educational mode in this regard. And we're hoping to do the same with notions of heritage, to involve youths in heritage and, in fact, in creating their own fresh interpretations of these sites through notions of the supernatural or more modern notions of the Gothic. So a broad group of, or demographic, shall we say, English heritage members, non-members, and youths who are local to each of these chosen sites. So young people, adults, even aspiring writers, casual writers. Um, yes, indeed. All sorts of you don't people. have to be a published writer to participate in, in the creative writing workshops. And in fact, they're going to be aimed at all levels of, of writers. So you might never have tried it before, but you'd still be very welcome to join. You'll be guided and prompted and supported with the help and the input of, of Rosie Garland, who's enormously experienced in this regard. And what we're going to do is ask those who've participated to send in 
their creative writing pieces at the end of each workshop or once they've developed them further at home. And we're going to publish them on the project website at the termination of the project. So hopefully, uh, for those who've never published before, it'll be a kind of point of entry into publication. So we could be seeing new poetry or new short stories or even maybe song lyrics. Well, that would be absolutely wonderful. You know, that's precisely what what we're trying to do. We're trying to generate new creative responses to the ruins, literary responses. We're also excited to see what these groups of youths come up with on their own terms. We've left the brief quite open. And they might, for example, choose to produce a soundscape related to the supernatural and any particular site, or indeed a short film related to the supernatural at any site. So the youth engagement work is designed to foster fresh youth-led interpretations of these particular sites. Yes, they're all completely valid creative responses, aren't they? And we're doing yes. a soundscape today, in a way, by doing yes, the podcast indeed. on it. Yeah. So um, how did you get this idea then to combine the idea of monastic ruins with guided tours, ghost stories and creative writing workshops? The project originated in about 2015 with a large AHRC project, funded project that Michael and I worked on, and that was called Writing Britain's Ruins. 1700 to 1850, The Architectural Imagination. And as the name of that project implies, it aimed to explore the importance of ruins, not only monastic ruins, but military ruins, fortifications, castle ruins, etc., to the literary imagination in the long 18th century. And we produced a co-edited collection of essays. I wrote a monograph on the subject, really trying to explore the connections between architecture, ruined architecture, and what we now understand as Gothic and Romantic writing. Now, that came to an end in about 2018, and Michael and I still felt that there was more that we could do. So we made another application to the AHRC, this time for what is called follow-on funding, And the object of follow-on funding is to take the sometimes arcane and inaccessible research of a formal academic research project and to popularize it and to take it into real-life situations beyond the academy. And we thought that there was probably no better topic than the supernatural from the medieval period right through the Gothic into contemporary times to engage modern-day audiences. So Our aim is very much to take the research that we worked on in writing Britain's Ruins into the modern-day tourist and heritage industry to engage and inspire and excite audiences through the supernatural and also to recreate some of those earlier 18th century interests in ruins around the supernatural and the Gothic for modern-day audiences. Mm. What were you going to say, Michael? Yeah, I, I just want to add to that, you know, that what we're basically doing is taking some hard, rigorous scholarship, as Dale said, some subjects which can be a little bit difficult to access the literature or the arguments and to make them much more accessible. And it's also about our shared interests. It very quickly became apparent that we both had a, 
a strong interest in tales of the supernatural, historical tales of the supernatural. I think it's important for us to say as well that humans have been telling ghost stories since the dawn of recorded history. You find them in Homer's Iliad, and all great civilizations around the world have stories of the supernatural, ghost stories as well. And this isn't a kind of like an attempt to like sort of titillate with the odd kind of pleasing, most haunted kind of pleasing terror. This is actually taking established, recognized cultural, historical and literary phenomena and seeing what their relevance is to how we can look at and understand these remarkable buildings the way of life that was lived within them and how they've been perceived by later generations. So it's hard scholarship being made accessible to the public, giving them a new insights, and I hope an awful lot of fun when they're visiting these monasteries and looking at them through this fresh prism. And also if they do have a pleasing terror, well, that's all the better too. Some people listening might not be believers in the supernatural some people are very scientific and they don't believe in any of this stuff. So is it really legitimate to use the supernatural as this tool to interpret the past? I think absolutely. Medieval monasteries were established because of a belief in the hereafter. You founded them if you were a rich noble or something that, so your sins would be forgiven and you wouldn't burn for eternity in hell, that you would have the chance of going to heaven. And then people would give money to the monasteries, so the monks would say prayers, so their souls would have a quick passage through purgatory and find bliss in heaven. And the stories that were written by monks, sometimes monks in the very, very monasteries we will be included in this program of events, the stories written by these monks, and in some cases nuns as well, reaffirmed this belief system. They get to the heart of what medieval monasticism was about. And then similarly, when you get the great religious changes of the 16th and 17th century, well, ghosts play a very, very important part in those early modern culture wars as well. And I'll hand over to Dale to complete this answer. I think prior to the rise of notions of heritage with a capital H, what we now understand by heritage was originally a Gothic concern. In other words, you had droves of domestic picturesque tourists in pursuit of picturesque vistas, making their way to sites of ruin in the 18th century across Britain's landscapes, and there encountering various versions of the supernatural, projecting into these vacant ruins, ghostly visages of the, the, or visions of the people who once lived there, imagining historical tales of horror and terror from the past that played themselves out in these ruins. So prior to official notions of heritage, I think there was a, a kind of Gothic interest in ruination. And we're trying to recover that through this project. I think it's also worth emphasizing that at the termination of the project, we're going to be offering a workshop for heritage professionals in which we reflect on our experiences. So we're going to be asking people for their impressions and their feedback on these various workshops and the guided tours and this 
foray through the ruins via the supernatural. And we're going to feed this back in a workshop for heritage professionals at the end of the project to see whether the supernatural has indeed been effective as a means of interpreting the past, whether people's experience of ruination and heritage, architectural heritage, has been enhanced and enriched through our project, which uses the supernatural to interpret the past. So in a sense, we're using these five sites as a kind of testing ground for broader theories around the use of Gothic, the supernatural, in the heritage industry Mm. today. Yeah, it's very interesting, I think, isn't it? Because it's multi-layered. As Michael's described in his answer, the way that monks and nuns in particular would have thought about the afterlife and also the, the noble people who would have founded monasteries, they thought very differently about their existence. And we've covered in previous episodes, haven't we, Michael, about how death was always quite close and um, the Grim Reaper tapping on your shoulder was never really far away. So it is, to me, at least a a valid lens to look at the past uh, because we don't really live like that today. Uh, I think we sort of think, as we've described in previous podcasts, Michael, that death is hopefully something very, very far away and we don't have to deal with it. But actually, it's very immediate if you were living hundreds of years ago. Uh, In the middle of life, we are as in death. Uh, line from the medieval and actually to this day the liturgy of the church says people in the middle ages were very very aware of the immediacy of death as you say and also a major preoccupation was the post-mortem fate of their souls and this is shown by the tales of the supernatural we have from each of these sites There are 12 wonderful stories from Byland Abbey, which I've talked about, I think, in a previous podcast written down by one of the monks in 14, about the year 1400. One of them has this revenant, this corpse rising from the grave, from its grave in the abbey's cloister, wandering across the moors and doing foul deeds and the monks having to dispose of the body. Then we have other stories, for instance, of a a canon of a nearby priory at Newburgh who needs post-mortem forgiveness for sins because he's stolen some spoons and he has to come back and haunt somebody so he can get these um, services performed so he can be forgiven, absolved of his sin and go to heaven. We've got a ghostly army at Roach Abbey and that would have been a story that would have appealed to the class of benefactors of monasteries. We've got some very, very chilling stories of the Middle Ages from Lanacost Priory, some of which it's very, very difficult to read a moral into. Well, one of them actually in, in involves um, a cavorting student at Oxford who should be getting down to the serious business of pious book learning and don't. There's a bit of a moral there, I suppose. And then from Revo, we have an appearance of the most fearsome supernatural being of all in the Middle Ages, and that's the devil himself appearing to monks in the dormitory. And what does that story tell us about how difficult it was to be a monk and the purpose of monasticism? And then Dale, I'm sure, has some wonderful 18th century stories associated with these sites that he could tell us about as well. Yes, you know, in post-Reformation culture, and particularly the vehemently anti-Catholic nature of 18th century British Protestantism, these ruins become sites for certain cultural nightmarish imaginings. So there's this continuous preoccupation that the ruined abbey 
is a site of Catholic indiscretion, of licentious behavior that has mercifully been raised by the Protestant Reformation. But nonetheless, these sites persist in the cultural imaginary as objects of fascination. And this is where the Gothic imagination kicks in. And you have several Gothic romances and dramas and poems and other narratives set in real and imagined ruined monasteries that people these abbeys and these monasteries with lascivious monks and nuns, with sometimes werewolf-like creatures, with corrupt abbots who exact of those in their care dreadful favours, and also with the supernatural. These ruins become haunted and, and sites of nightmare and haunting and terror for the Protestant imagination in the 18th century. But they also inspire kind of many wistful visions, often supernatural projections. For example, when the great Gothic romancer, perhaps the greatest Gothic romancer of the 18th century, Anne Radcliffe, visits on a tour of the English lakes, Furness Abbey in Cumbria, she projects into this ruin ghostly visions of the monks who once lived there and engages on this kind of florid flight of fantasy around these spectral inhabitants who once inhabited the abbey and writing in the process her own wonderful creative response to the ruin. Mm. It's really interesting how different people in different time periods with the passing of time from being active monasteries to then being ruins can all have different responses to the same location. And I think obviously some of our creative writers and listeners and visitors and members who attend these tours and workshops will have their own responses as well, which I think is really, really interesting. Very much so. You know, we're not trying to toe a line here. We're trying to inspire what the original research called the architectural imagination. That is the extent to which these sites can still function as what Anne Radcliffe herself called a muse. So the extent to which these sites can inspire and ignite chains of association, imaginative flights of fancy. What do these ruins mean to you today? How do you appreciate them? How do you respond to them creatively? That's one of the questions that is at the heart of our project. And another question, of course, is it's centred on Northern England. So people might want to know, why did you choose Northern England? So we've got Byland Abbey, North Yorkshire, Furness Abbey, Cumbria, Lanacost Priory, also Cumbria, Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire, and Roche Abbey, South Yorkshire. So why Northern English religious sites for this series of events? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's because the source material is very, very strong indeed. Now, if you dig deep enough, most monasteries will have some tale of the supernatural associated with them and some historic tale of the supernatural as well. And I, we're deliberately excluding more modern tales of this, of like, you know, our visitor felt a bit of a chill in a certain room or through the corner of the eye saw something. No, we're basing these on the historical sources. And as I said, it's a prism through which to view the history of these sites. Now, why do Northern English monasteries have such strong source material for studying the supernatural in the Middle Ages and 18th centuries? Really, really interesting question. 
I think it's partly an accident of survival that we have, you know, the Byland stories survived and these brilliant stories in the Lanacost Chronicle as well. But also some scholars have argued that because of a melding of different ghost story traditions that happens in the Middle Ages in the northern counties of England. So it's the very, very pious medieval tradition of souls returning from purgatory and requesting post-mortem prayer and masses so their souls can be absolved. And a melding with a much, much more malign and frightening ghost story tradition of revenants that's come from Scandinavia. These foul, almost devilish beings that rise from their graves that can be neither appeased by nor seek pious prayer. And you do find an awful lot of those stories coming from northern English sites. So, you know, is it an actual medieval phenomenon or is it an accident of survival? I'm not so sure. And also it made sense for us to choose a discrete geographical region in which to do this as well. And hey, they are brilliant ruins and sites as well. I think it's important to say too that there are other sites we could have looked at. One that I've worked on extensively and that springs to mind is Netley Abbey in Southampton which has a very, very strong tradition of the supernatural associated with it. And in particular, what what has been called sacrilege narratives. Now, these are ghost stories peddled by 17th and 18th century antiquaries who rehearse tales of supernatural intervention to prevent any acts of desecration or sacrilege. So when someone tries to destroy this already destroyed grand building and to take parts of the ruin to repurpose it for a house, the supernatural intervenes and prevents this act of sacrilege, this further destruction of this this wonderful, once wonderful fabric. So there's a strong tradition of these sacrilege narratives at a place like Netley Abbey in Southampton, but ultimately, our decision was was governed by the richness of the material in these northern sites and, as Michael has said, by certain logistical considerations. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to extrapolate the principles derived from these five sites to the broader heritage industry and to other monasteries and ruins across the country through the creative writing workshops and also through our own series of podcasts, not this English Heritage Series, but we're also developing a series of podcasts that are going to be beamed out from October on the more general question of ruins, writing, the supernatural, the Gothic in the 18th century, radiating far beyond the material that, that we're looking at in these, these five particular sites. One of the key parts of these events that are being put on, these free events, is ghost stories. And I can't help but to put a sort of bit of a twist on it vocally there, because they are so interesting and spooky. Why are these so significant, Michael? Well, I've already talked about the medieval ghost stories, those written by the monks in, in the late Middle Ages. But we'll also be using some 20th century ghost stories as well. Now, a key component of this will be ghost story readings, and thereby Robert Lloyd Parry of Nunky Theatre. And he'll be reading some ghost stories by Montague Rhodes James, uh, Cambridge Don, fantastic medievalist. I still consult works by James on medieval stained glass, 
illuminated manuscripts, books of the Bible. But James is most remembered today for his ghost stories. Um, Many of them have historical, antiquarian, medieval themes. Some of them concern monasteries as well. And there's a very, very special connection with James and these ghost stories, as well, the medieval ghost stories and our sites as well, because it was Montague Rhodes James who in 1922 published in a very, very scholarly journal called the English Historical Review, a transcription of the 12 ghost stories written by the Byland Abbey monk in around about 1400. Now, he didn't do anything as popular as translate them or anything like that. These were all full Latin transcriptions. He archly comments that the Latin was refreshing, which probably meant bad, and that the hand was difficult. And it says something if James found the handwriting difficult, because he was an expert in transcribing medieval handwriting. Now, they were very, very quickly translated, but it's a great connection that we have that here we are, it's a hundred years since James transcribed these ghost stories, first bringing them to widespread uh, popular attention. And here we are having a series of events focused on Byland and other monasteries. And we've got Robert at Nunky Theatre reading some M.R. James ghost stories. And anybody who knows James's ghost stories will know that they do indeed provide a pleasing terror, but they speak to the English historical and antiquarian tradition and imagination as well. I don't know if you'd want to add anything more to that, Dale. No, I think that's, that, that's fine, yeah. And I think the fact that they're going to be read is an important point because to hear stories being told in a certain way with certain vocal storytelling and cadence and suspense and terror and, you know, rise and fall and light and shade... These are all things that uh, really come across well in the sonic medium. You can really put a lot of theatre into it, can't you, when in, in, a, in an in-person performance? Oh, Robert is just brilliant. And he actually, if you look at a photograph of Montague Rose James and you look at a photograph of Robert in costume, I think you'll see some great similarities. I can't recommend them enough that they as well as being hugely, hugely entertaining and a little bit creepy, they're also fascinating essays in exploration of English antiquarianism and the English ghost story tradition. I really would encourage you if you can make it. And, And at the time of me recording this, places are still available for some of the readings to come along and sample them. And the fact that these are part integrated into this wider analysis of the use of the supernatural, of these genuine medieval sources, medieval and later sources, touching upon the supernatural as a way of understanding these monasteries is really quite special. Mm, Absolutely. Going back to the site tours as well, what will be covered during these tours? Do you know how long they'll last? And We're aiming for them to be about an hour hour and a half long, no longer. And, um, you know, an hour, hour and a half might sound quite long to be on, on your feet, but these are big sites to get around. And I promise you, you will be entertained and fascinated whilst you're going around. Dale and I will aim to show how the supernatural will provide a fascinating prism through which to interpret key aspects of the history 
architecture, artifacts, and even some quite small architectural details at these sites. I think they're going to be fantastic, and I really am looking forward to leading whoever turns up on the day. And, and I have to emphasize again, these are all free. Byland Abbey is already a free site. The other ones, the free to get into for English Heritage members, there's an entry fee for non-members. But once you've got past that English Heritage paywall, they're free. And I think they're just going to be fantastic and provide a really fascinating, fresh way of looking at the history, architecture and artefacts associated with these sites. Yes, and it's a good thing you've mentioned architecture because um, that's an important part of these sites. And in various episodes before, Michael, we've talked about Gothic monastic architecture. And we also talked in another episode with a few guests on Revo Abbey about the Gothic style there. So how would you define Gothic architecture for people who don't know it? It's pointy architecture, basically. It's uh, pointy doorways, pointy windows, even pointy letter forms when you get to illuminated manuscripts. And there's been much debate about, first of all, why is it called Gothic? And we all owe that to Renaissance art historian and artists called Vasari, who rather pejoratively talks about this barbarian style introduced by the northern Goths. And it's the dominant form of architecture across Europe from the late 12th century through to the 16th century. It evolves considerably over that time. Revo Abbey is a monument to the development of Gothic architecture, and so too Byland Abbey. Byland Abbey, an incredibly important Gothic building. Roach Abbey, probably the first fully Gothic building in northern England. Furness, very, very important as well. You can see the transition of architectural styles there as well, and also at Lanacost. It's you know basically an architectural style, and loads has been written about it. It is a fascinating subject. We're also interested in Gothic in another sense, and that is in the fictional or aesthetic understanding it is there that the architectural understanding of Gothic and the literary understanding of Gothic come together. It's no coincidence that the first Gothic novel, Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto from 1764, is set in a Gothic castle uh, or a medieval castle, although the word Gothic is never used in that text. It's rather appended as a subtitle in the second edition of the novel in 1764. But nonetheless, when the Gothic takes off as a, as a kind of literary form in the 18th century, it almost invariably uses architectural settings to establish itself, be that a castle or a, a monastery or an abbey. So architectural understandings of the word Gothic come together with the fictional in the 18th century. And we're trying to exploit all understandings of the word Gothic in this project. Yes, just another layer for people to peel back and another layer that's part of the whole story, which makes it very, very tantalising and interesting. The more you peel back, the more you discover. So I think that's fascinating. But obviously, we return to the fact that these are a series of free events. So how does a project such as this become funded if it's free? We're enormously, enormously grateful to the Arts and Humanities Research Council for funding this through what is called follow-on funding, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a scheme designed specifically to 
take the fruits of earlier research, research in this case funded by the AHRC, into the real world beyond the academy. So taking it beyond the page, beyond publications, beyond journal articles, beyond academic monographs, and really impacting directly upon real people's experiences. So this project has been very generously funded by an AHRC follow-on fund called Experiencing Britain's Ruins, Revenants and Remains at Five Ruined Northern English Religious Houses. Well, we're very grateful for that funding having come through so that this can be put on for writers, members, visitors, whoever wants to come along. And I think actually the fact that English Heritage and working with Dale at Manchester Metropolitan has been able to get this funding tells us a lot about the nature of English Heritage today, that we do, people like me at English Heritage, do serious academic research. And it's great to be able to partner with Dale, you know, leading scholar on the 18th century Gothic. It's a privilege to be working with him. But, you know, we are, English Roaches is an independent research, what's called an independent research organization. We're eligible for these kinds of grants. And we're here being able, we've, through this grant, we've got the a fantastic opportunity to show how applicable this research is and how it can be applied to the setting of our sites to make them more accessible for members of the visiting public and to provide them with a new, fresh, exciting, and dare I say, fun way of interpreting them. Yes, it makes it contemporaneous, makes it relevant to a modern audience. It turns history from merely being somewhere in the past to being really in someone else's present. And I think that's a really important thing, isn't it? It feeds into the storytelling aspect and how how site stories are told to people. So I suppose that leads into the next question, which is, what do you hope people attending one of these events will get out of it? I hope people will come away understanding why these monasteries were founded in the first place, why they were so significant to the religious lives and actually all aspects of life in the Middle Ages, how culture wars are nothing new at all and how key aspects of belief became intensely contested in the 16th and 17th century and then the enduring significance of the sites in in the later Gothic imagination. I also hope that people will come away having had a really, really good day out, discovered skills they didn't know and wanting to understand more. Uh, Dale, do you want to add anything? I'm hoping that people will come to appreciate heritage, architectural heritage in a new way. I'm hoping that our novel use of the supernatural will engage people who otherwise feel excluded from notions of heritage. I'm also hoping that these events are going to inspire some measure of the kind of creativity that they did in the 18th century. So I'm hoping to to see people writing about them again, perhaps being uh, tempted to write their own novels or poems or, or dramas in which the ruins play an important part. So I'm hoping that people feel inspired in all senses, whether it's historically, whether it's in in terms of literature, whether it's in terms of an increased, renewed, invigorated interest in the medieval past and, and in its 18th century legacy. 
Yes, I think that's a really important point to emphasise, isn't it? Because, yes, we're talking about an event which uh, is happening during the autumn of 2022. But if you are listening to this podcast and it's after that date, there's nothing to stop you enjoying these sites, taking a pen and pad and or even a, a camera, taking photos, taking um, a sketchbook. You know, we have a, a very active Twitter account and we have a very active Instagram account. Both can be searched through Revenants and Remains. And there is also the project website with an email address. So in years to come, if this is still generating interest and creative activity and creative responses, well, we'd be delighted to receive news of that. Absolutely. So do you want to take this show on the road to other parts of England, um, perhaps for future autumnal events? I think that's something for the English Heritage Events Programme. And um, I think it's got a lot of legs as a way of, ha ha ha, taking it on the road, a way of showing how you can interpret monasteries and indeed other sites as well for the visiting public, showing the key importance of beliefs about the hereafter to understanding these buildings. And also, you know, so there's already a scholarly dimension to it. Dale mentioned the edited volume we published uh, some time ago, his own fantastic monograph on the Gothic. But we're also hoping to co-write a book on this subject as well, showing how the supernatural has been used and can be used as a way of interpreting these monasteries from the 9th to the 19th century. Well, I think it's a really interesting project. And um, as I've said before, multi-layered. There's so many ways that you can respond to it. Um, You can do it at the time or you can do it at a future date. You can do it through song lyrics. You could do it through short stories. You could do it through poetry. You could do it through an article for your school magazine or something or your own personal website, your own blog. So I think there's lots of different ways that people can enjoy these sites and enjoy other sites around the country and have their own creative responses to them. So uh, I wish you both the best of luck with the project and with your collaborators as well. And I hope lots of interesting things get written and said and performed. It's a real pleasure. And uh, likewise, I think this promises to be a really, really exciting, fun program of events and I'm looking forward to meeting English heritage members and just general members of the public. I think it's going to be a really interesting way of bringing these monasteries alive for visitors, some of whom I hope will never have visited an English heritage site before, but realise that there are so many fascinating ways to appreciate these buildings and historic beliefs about the afterlife are key to this. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll continue the supernatural theme by exploring Whitby Abbey's role in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Where you have this really gothic, dramatic shipwreck. The only living being that comes off of the ship is a massive dog that bounds off of the ship and up the 199 steps in Whitby. Thanks for listening. See you next time.